Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, May the 17th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to send me an email, it's Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope everybody's doing well here. Beautiful weekend in New York. I hope uh, you safely have been able to get out of some of your cabin fever and made your way out into the world. Uh, week before Memorial Day, and of course, there won't be any baseball on Memorial Day. And I think uh, I speak for all of you, especially as uh, we get deeper and deeper into the spring and soon to be summer. You're really starting to feel. Uh, the fact that we do not have baseball, and even with some of the proposals, which I'll get into in a minute, that Major League Baseball has sent out with the safety protocols, and eventually has they negotiate contracts and money and things like that, uh, makes you wonder if even having a baseball season will be worth it. Uh, and certainly, hopefully, hopefully, not certainly, hopefully, there won't be some long-lasting damage, depending on, on what the big sticking points will be, whether it be health, safety, financial and my guess is financial but let me get to that in just a minute uh, joining me today uh, Michael Stahl Michael just came out with a book 
Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. Yes, Bartolo Colon has uh, an autobiography, a memoir, however you want to call it. And Michael Stahl, the author, will be joining us. We'll get into his experience working with Bartolo on this book. And I had a chance to read it. And I'll tell you what, uh, whether you're a baseball fan, a Mets fan, some really interesting stories. Gives you a chance to learn a little bit more about Bartolo, get you a perspective on Bartolo. And wouldn't be a, a figure that I think would have a book. Uh, and and I and there were things, because Bartolo, when he was here, was not comfortable speaking English to the media. So you, you got interviews, but these interviews where an interpreter basically does the interview. You have no idea the context and everything that comes out of who the person is. So you get a chance to read this, get a chance to learn a little bit more about Bartolo, relive some of his fun moments with the Mets, not just the home run. I always feel like we remember the home run, but Bartolo Colon is so much more. His importance to the Mets was so much more than just the home run and uh, his career uh, as a major league pitcher. And we'll get into that uh, conversation with Michael, which I don't believe is Hall of Fame, but certainly because of the amount of wins, the length of the career, and some of his great moments, certainly can be considered up for discussion for the Hall of Fame. So Michael Stahl, big sexy Bartolo Colon in his own words, will be joining me in just a minute. Uh, You guys have known, like I said earlier, I am all for finding a way to get baseball back, as long as it's done the right way. Uh, My biggest thing, and I've said it from the start, if you go all the way back, you want to listen to podcasts from late March. When the country is at a point where we figured out the adult stuff, the real stuff, the things that matter, like uh, the health situation, like getting small business back and getting people back to work as much as you can. And really, I I don't I hate the word new normal because new normal indicates mediocrity, in my opinion, but getting people to adapt to some of the challenges that are in front of them and turn the page and move towards uh, making a better future with whatever uh, the situation is. So that's always been my thing. And until you can say people, for the most part, feel like they have some kind of routine in this situation, they're working, their companies are back, uh, there's a way for them to interact more normally with their families. Uh, I, I think sports is that like final piece. I've always said that. And I'm not sure, despite what the media wants you to know and politicians want you to know. I'm not sure we're at that point, uh, at least not in New York. And I know some of the other states across the country are in a different position. But I think we still have a long ways to go. And it makes me a little uneasy about how I feel. And I, I know there's a clock ticking. you got a pu- couple of more weeks to figure out a deal before, uh, uh, you know, you got to get serious about getting back. But it makes me a little uneasy how we're trying to ramp this thing up, this baseball thing up. Uh, so quickly, not because I don't think they could put an environment with health and safety. I think, if anything, when you have this smallerish, still big, smallerish community, uh, you could certainly maintain. And it sounds like they're going to use the same company that does their uh, steroid testing. You could maintain some kind of testing method that will target where there could be a problem. My issue is because you have so many different things at play. You have the real-world health component. You have the fans and, and their situation and how, despite wanting a distraction, they're going through so many things, some people in, in their life. Then you have the media and their agenda about how this is going to play because now you're going to have the national media 
and, and the non-sports media watching this. You have the politicians, the public health officials. Everybody's going to want this to go their way. And what you get with a situation like that is uh, if you've gone to the news and if you have The Athletic, you go and you get a small snapshot. If you just look at right now what's been reported, the health situation, you get a lot of goofy window dressing stuff that really I think I can't see the players in in, in a best-case scenario adhering to these things 100%. I find it hard to believe a league that had sign stealing right under their nose is going to be able to police things like, hey, you can't leave your hotel room or you can only have your immediate family visit you. So the side piece on the road that certain people, she's not allowed. Is that considered immediate family? <laughs> you can't have any kind of interaction, anybody on the road. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're really taking away things like, uh, you know, therapy at the ballpark, putting a huge risk out for injuries. I mean, we've gotten so silly where uh, they're, they're re- recommending that infielders move back in between pitches uh, from the, uh, the base runners to keep them safe. So let me get this straight. The virus will take a break in between pitches. Uh, you know, the, no, the virus will take a break during play, but the virus won't take a break in between pitches. Once you're in a situation like a baseball game, all bets are off. You could certainly do some sensible type of things. Testing, taking temperature, really looking where a problem could be. I have no problem with. Whether you're six feet away in a dugout, 5.5 feet away, seven feet away, three feet away, doesn't matter. You can't have this control environment. Once you're in this situation, all bets are off. All this other stuff putting people in the stands, six feet away, social distance. The catcher has to um, you know, go out to the grass to, to signal to the infielders because all of a sudden, coming out from behind the plate, you know, that little, you know, what, you know, six-inch movement, 12-inch movement, whatever it is from where they are, uh, that's going to make a big difference. I mean, really, what this document read like to me is total pandering to the public health officials, to the political correct crowd, um, to the, the national media that will shame them for coming back because, you know, obviously there are more important things and people are going to be angry because there's always somebody or a group that's angry that something nice is being uh, given to other people because they can't have whatever it is they want or just for the simple reason they don't want it because it's counterculture to want something as, you know, standard and American as Major League Baseball. So there's so many things that are at play here. Not to mention the fact that you're ramping these players up after they were ramped up and ready to go pretty much. They've been now down for eight weeks. Um, Then you're going to take away all these in-stadium amenities. I mean, they're not going to be able to take a shower. So you're going to tell me these sweaty ball players who you don't want to have take an Uber, because that's in there too, are going to go on a bus together. Maybe you'll limit the amount of people on a bus. But these sweaty ball players are all going to be together. And that's safer than them cleaning themselves off, being hygienic. And that's even the other thing. They're actually going to have parts in this thing which encourage hygiene. I mean, guys, we are adults here. These are Major League Baseball adults. Now, do some of them more hygienic than others? I'm sure, just like any other group of humans. But if we're at a point where you think for a minute you're going to control every movement for these players from the minute 
they start playing baseball whenever that is in June to the end of whatever this season, how long it goes. And what are the punishments going to be? So I decide to, you know, I have a friend in Texas and I want to meet her. And I consider her a cousin. Is that not, I guess that's not immediate family. Um, I can't meet them. They can't come to my hotel room. Who's going to stop them? You're going to have the hotel shut down. I mean, it's not going to be hard. There's not going to be other people probably that want to be in that hotel. You're going to have that hotel hotel shut down. You're going to have a security guard. Are we going to get the point where this is going to be a gulag? I mean, if you read this document, to me, everything that's wrong with what's going on in the world and the unnecessary window dressing solutions just to have a solution is at play. Just read what they want to do. I mean, you're going to have, it's basically ball players getting in a bus, going to the ballpark, playing ball, and then getting back on the bus and going home, just like I did when I was in uh, Sandlot Ball back in the late 80s. Got in the car, my dad drove me to the ballpark, played ball, there was really no amenities, there was no showers, maybe there was a bathroom somewhere in the field, you know, public field, you played, you went home. That's it. That's it. Just like back, really back to the most granular thing, and maybe there's a certain charm to that, but to me... Once I start seeing, you know, no fist bumps, no handshakes, handshakes. guys, you're in on a, when you are, uh, there's a play at second base and you guys get tangled up, what are we going to do? We're going to encourage people not to slide into second base. We're going to let, if the play, you know, you, I could see it now. If it doesn't look like there's going to be a play, just step away and let the, the, the guy take the base because that's really going to keep people safe. Now. Maybe they needed to put something together to show the union they're serious about safety. But again, I go through this entire document and I read the things they want to do. And outside of testing for both uh, you know, individuals that may be coming down with something and feel they came down with something to just uh, some kind of uh, you know, proactive testing with temperatures or things like that, other than that, nothing's in your control. Yeah, you could sanitize and clean the the the, the clubhouse. You're going to be. I mean, the amount of baseballs they're going to use. What it sounds like is as it, as you get multiple people touching the baseball, they they want to change it. Once that pitcher gets that ball, he pitches that. If he's sick, if he came down with something, and that ball goes into the uh, play, all bets are off. Oh, you can't spit. Well, what if the guy sneezes on the mound? What if he coughs? We're going to stop everything and have like a, a sanitizing crew come out? Because it's going to happen. I mean, really, it's going to happen. I mean, I'm waiting to see them say, well, you know, put masks on uh, on these guys in the field, which, I mean, if anyone, who, and I'm sure you have been wearing a mask, I mean, you start, especially if you're at like one of those N95 versions, I've worn them. I was wearing them for about 45 minutes going into storage yesterday. And uh, you start to feel it because you're breathing in your own air and you're like, geez, I got to get this thing off. And if you have a sense of relief when you take it off because you got some fresh air. We're stupid as a society. We've gotten really dopey on a lot of things. A lot of this has come out over the last couple of months with this. And I'm not trying to diminish or get political or have anybody say anything uh, to me that says I'm not taking this seriously because I, I get it. I, I get I got a risk every time I step out the door. But if we're going to just start destroying every institution in the name of what I really see political correct window dressing to pander to certain groups of individuals, namely the public health officials in the media, then don't give me baseball. Don't give me baseball like this because this to me is a joke. I mean, this will be the butt joke going 
down the line for the rest of history. Nobody will want to remember this season. As it is, an 81-game season, 82-game season, whatever it may be, I'm not sure how seriously any of the results will be taken. And the other day I was talking to somebody, and they mentioned, well, did you take the Eastern Conference uh, Championship for the Knicks with Thrall Sprewell and that team? Uh, did you take that seriously? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Well, why wouldn't you take this? Well, that was still regular Eastern Conference, Western Conference, you know, regular conditions. Uh, there wasn't all these other uh, secondary rules that change what the feel and the look of the game is. And we haven't even gotten into the real meat and potatoes proposal. We've heard certain rumors of what the actual game will look like in terms of standings, leagues, schedule, playoffs, all that stuff. You know, we've heard a lot of things. We, you know, it sounds like there's going to be a DH, which that's the only thing out of all of this that I've heard that makes me happy to tell you the truth. So anyway, let me uh, get off this before I get myself in trouble because now you guys are all going to send me emails saying you're getting into the wrong end of the spectrum here. You're getting into politics. You're not taking the virus seriously. That's none of the above. I've said from the beginning, my, uh, I certainly want people to be healthy. I certainly want everybody to take it seriously and be safe. I think there's some very practical, common sense measures uh, that we've seen out there that uh, are now starting to go overboard to basically take a bazooka to swat a fly. That's what this is. Because once you kill the fly, that's all you need to do. And by taking temperatures, by uh, you know staying somewhat reasonable with the, in terms of the cleaning, and by making sure that you know if there is, you know, if you have this, the system to test without hurting the public, you know who has something. Get him quarantined, get him out of the stadium, get him in his hotel, and that's it. That's all you can do. It's the, and I'll leave you with this before we get to Michael Stahl. You could teach people how to drive. You could give them rules on the road. You could give them the speed limit. There is no guarantee when you leave your house later today that the person next to you is going to follow them. All you can do is hope that as you give these sensible rules on the road, that everybody understands the importance of getting from A to B. And for the most part, they do, and there's going to be a jerk every once in a while that does something. And we're going to make mistakes unintentionally and get into car accidents. And God forbid sometimes those accidents lead to fatalities. This is no different, people. This is no different. Common sense. And there's been such a lack of common sense now for a long while since this became the rage, the coronavirus became the rage, became a political component. And now they're trying to take that political component, jam it into Major League Baseball, who wants to come back because they're so desperate for revenue. Um, I don't even hear the other sports talking about it. And I'll tell you what, Major League Baseball will be doing this if they come back in September with all these crazy non-contact situations and essentially a non-contact sport. But the NFL, which has about as much contact, I mean, the most contact-driven sport in, in, in the world, you know, they'll just tackle everybody and there'll be, you know, a line of scrimmage. What are we going to do? Have the quarterback now stand back? There'll be no more handoffs. Everything will be shotgun because you want to make sure he stays safe. Is that what we're going to see come September? Come on, people. We've lost our minds. All right. Let me get off this. We'll take a quick break. When I return, Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. Really interesting autobiography. Another great book for you to read as we try to figure out. What to do with ourselves with no baseball a week before Memorial Day, week before the unofficial start of the summer. We'll talk a little bit about former Met Bartolo Colon right after this. He's just keeping the ball away from board the whole game. He wants to get it. There ball oh. behind the back, flip, and he got him. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's 
so easy for Cologne right now that he's able to put some mustard on it. First hit of the year. Oh. He drives one. Deep left field. That goes Upton. Back near the wall. It's out of here. <laughs> Bartolo has done it. The impossible has happened. The team vacates the dugout as Bartolo takes the long trot, his first career home run. And there will be nobody in the dugout to greet him. <laughs> this is one of the great moments in the history of baseball. Bartolo Colon has gone deep. I want to say that was one of the longest home run trots I've ever seen, but I think that's how fast he runs. <laughs> I'm joined by Michael Stahl. Uh, you guys uh, may have seen the book. It just came out about a week or so ago. Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. Former Met, former Indian, uh, beloved Met, actually, even though he has a short period of time, Bartolo Colon. You can check out Michael at his website, michaelstahlwrites.com, and at Michael R. Stoll. And Michael, welcome to the program. Now, Memorial Day just a week away, and there won't be any baseball, and we don't know if there'll be any baseball, but... Uh, I think if you're a Mets fan or or baseball fan, this book that uh, you came out with will at least scratch the itch a little bit. Real interesting stuff on a character, I have to admit, I did not expect a book to come out on. So pretty interesting how you're able to get this one put put through. Uh, Yeah, you know, Bartolo's, you know, he's a beloved person, uh, especially in the Mets community, but really honestly throughout Major League Baseball. Uh, I got to be in contact with some representatives from several major league franchises. And I promise you, this is not an exaggeration. Every time I would reach out to somebody in one of these franchises, they would say, oh, Bartolo, he's one of my favorite people that, you know, we've ever worked with, we've ever had here uh, on the team. Um, Beloved throughout the game, um, but a character. But I think also this book will really kind of show you um, that he's a very layered person. Um, I think kind of, you know, people saw this just sort of, you know, kind of shy, humble, you know, and yet sort of fun-loving guy. But there's many layers uh, to the to the Bartolo Colon, uh, the man. And his backstory is just one of incredible inspiration. Um, and people will really get to know him, you know, very intimately. And I think get to relive you know, some fantastic uh, baseball moments uh, from the past, you know, 25 years, basically. How did you come about? Because I wouldn't have thought of him wanting to write a book. I mean, he's kind of still playing, so he's not really retired, but I think his career is coming to an end. Uh, Obviously, the public perception, and he talks about it in the book. He speaks Spanish usually publicly because he's a lot more comfortable with that. So maybe you don't get the total feel of who he is. But how did you come about wanting to write the book, get in touch with him? Because this is just just came out of the blue when I saw I'm like, wow, Bartolo Colon with a book? That's interesting. It came out of the blue for me, too. Um, so what happened was uh, Abrams Books, which uh, published the book, uh, a an editor there, and the word editor now is kind of multifaceted. Uh, he's more of like a project manager, I guess you, you could say. Um, but uh, the, the editor there named uh, Garrett McGrath is a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, he actually was the one that came up with the idea in about August or September of 2018. 
Um, so I think he just, you know, he's a, he follows baseball. He's a big baseball fan. Uh, when we first met, that was actually kind of something we bonded over our, our, our respective love for baseball, even though he's a Yankees fan uh, and I'm a Mets <laughs> fan, but, um, but he, uh, he's, he's a great guy. And, and he came up with the idea for the book. And uh, I think, you know, just knowing Bartolo again, as this kind of character, this interesting guy, he had a feeling that, at that point that Bartolo's career was, was coming to an end. I think pretty much everybody did. Uh, and he approached Bartolo with the idea for the book. And again, that was in about September, 2018. Um, everyone had kind of signed off on it. And then Bartolo, I think that might've sort of <laughs> made it a little real for him, you know, retirement. So ironically, I think even while we were going through the process of writing this book, he was sort of wavering a little bit on whether or not to retire. I think he was, I, I really don't know this for sure, but I think at some points he was kind of, you know, settled and, and committed on retiring, but then just kind of wavered and, you know, it was, it was too difficult for him to give it up. And then, yeah, you know, even this year we had the book on the way and he signed with that team in the, in the Mexican league. Uh, but COVID-19 uh, canceled that season uh, indefinitely. So, you know, unfortunately I think this might, you know, be a, I don't know if it's a pre, I don't know if it's a premature to end to his career. I mean, it might be in his mind, but uh, COVID might've actually sort of ended his career prematurely. I think he wanted to give it, one last go, he was trying to even in, in the 2019 season, and a couple of teams had contact with him. I believe the Tigers did. I think I heard at some point the Mets had contacted him as well or looked into it, but they, I think they signed Irvin Santana instead. Um, so he's been trying to come back, um, but obviously, uh, you know, his, his age is – he's getting up there in age, and, uh, and also, again, the COVID-19 crisis didn't, didn't really help things for him. Michael Stahl, author of the book, Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words, a really good and what they call now the pandemic books that you want to read, getting your baseball itch. Thank and you, you mentioned that, that everybody um, you know, had something, you know, when you brought up Bartolo, oh, wow, let me have a great story. And that's what's fun about this book. So if you buy it, you have a Manny, Manny Ramirez tells a story, Omar Vizquel. Uh, mm -hmm. Albert Pujols, these are not easy. Like, Ramirez, that's not an easy guy. If I called Manny Ramirez and he'd come on a podcast, he's probably going to say no. Um, but it seems like, like you said, and I'm wondering, you know, I always ask an author, what, what was your biggest learning or surprise when you took on this project? Was it the fact, like you said earlier, how many people wanted to engage you in conversation about Bartolo? Um, and not just, I'm sure, Latino players. I mean, uh, he seemed to transcend in those locker rooms through different clicks and whatnot. Was that your biggest learning? Or were there other things going in which you, as you said, as a Mets fan, thought you knew about Bartolo and then came out and said, wow, never expected that? I think this might sound, this might sound almost like insulting, and I don't mean it that, in this way at all uh, towards him. Not at all. I, I, I don't really have a, a bad thing to say about him. But I think the thing that I wouldn't say maybe surprised, that might not be the best way of putting it, but it just, it just was sort of, it, it just really piqued my interest about him was just how uh, smart and observant and conscientious he is. So, you know, I think Mets fans again, and then really just baseball fans, because he's always done these interviews in Spanish and things like that. You know, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect as much as Met, as, as fans feel like we know Bartolo, like there is still like this, like sort of little disconnect, with, you know, with him. And, 
getting to know him a little bit and, you know, really trying to sort of understand what he's trying to get across, I came to realize that he's very smart in his own way and very observant and conscientious of the way people think about him. So, for example, uh, in the book, you know, of course, he tells the story about the home run, right? And right. he was telling me that as he rounded first base, as he approached first base, the Padres first baseman, Will Myers, had his arms crossed and gave him a look like, I can't believe you just hit a home run. And <laughs> I remember when, when we were talking about that, Bartolo said to his interpreter, he said, now I want to stress this, that he didn't say that to me. I don't know what he was thinking, but it looked to me like he was surprised, that, that he looked at me like I, I couldn't believe you just hit a home run. So, you know, there, that right there was just like sort of an example of how sensitive he is, you know, and how he didn't want to, you know, show anybody else up. You know, again, with that home run, he tells the story in the book about um, seeing James Shields for the first time after the home run about uh, a year and a half later when he was in camp with the Rangers. Um, and James Shields says to him, hey, remember when you hit that home run off me? And even in that personal one-on-one -on -one exchange, Bartolo didn't want to, like, show the guy up. And he goes, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And then James Shields <laughs> laughed at him, you know. So I think that was one thing, again, I, surprise is not the right word. It just was sort of like, oh, this is something I really didn't get to know about him. And, uh, and, and again, he's just, he's just he's a sharp guy. He's, maybe smart isn't the right word in this context, but he's a sharp guy. You know, he's not this, like, sort of, like, happy-go-lucky, flippant, you know, uh, person uh, who is unaffected by things. He's very sensitive and very affected by his surroundings and conscientious of other people's feelings. And I think that's something that people who read the book will, will, will learn as well. You know, you brought up the hitting and, and it, I sometimes like, cause recently that's been what a lot of people talk about the home run. And there's so much more and you'll see in this book, there's so much more to Cologne. I mean, there's, and we'll get to it in a minute, two really two types of careers, two different types of pitchers, if you look at it. But what I found interesting yeah. is that when he came to the national league for the first time, well, he was with Montreal uh, briefly, but when he came back with the Mets, uh, he mm -hmm. turned hitting into this like routine. I mean, with the bigger hat, the hat flying off, um, yeah. He wanted to have fun with it. And, and I was surprised because you just said he's sensitive and he's a professional. And no matter mm -hmm. who you are, pitcher, you know, 25th man on the roster, nobody wants to be made of a joke of on a professional baseball field. But he turned a weakness into fun. And from what I understand and I've right. heard, and I can't remember who told me this, he's not all that awful in batting practice. So it wasn't surprising. And I don't remember who said this. It might have been a current Met format who said that they weren't totally surprised because he's not that bad of a hitter but he turned it kind of into his own little sideshow, maybe to have fun and deflect. But I found that interesting about how he talked about his hitting in that way, in a way that you would not have expected a professional hitter to talk about themselves. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that, um, well, you know, one thing that I thought about as you were, as you were speaking was in, in Gary Cohen's famous home run call, right? He says, you knew if he ever got, you know, hit one the right way, made contact the right way, he was strong enough to do it. And I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, Bartolo growing up, of course, you know, he hit all the time. And, and he said that he was, you know, a very good hitter. And I think that that's probably true for probably any major league pitcher. You know, they grow up. They're not pitching all the time. You're not even really supposed to start really throwing until you're 13. So 
you know, if you're playing baseball starting at age four or five years old, that's still a lot of hitting. And then even when you're pitching into, you know, your high school and college years, you're still going and hitting. So, you know, these guys still, you know, like to hit. But, boy, what a, what a you know, what a statement that makes about the quality of major league pitchers, right? That even, even though these pitchers, you know, it takes so much practice um, to, to be able to step into a box against major league pitchers. Um, but Bartolo took it very seriously. Um, as soon as he signed with the Mets, he was already talking with, uh, you know, one of his representatives, uh, Cesar. Uh, he was saying, you know, my goal is to, to hit a home run, you know, uh, and, and they had actually sort of, uh, I'm not sure if this made it into the book, but they had actually sort of made a bet uh, that in 2016 that he would hit a home run. He didn't, or not in 20, or his first year with the Mets, sorry. They had made a bet before 2014 that he would hit a home run. Now, actually, Bartolo lost that bet, but then in 2016, he hits, he hits the famous home run. So he took it very seriously, and he says in the book that by 2016, he was feeling a lot more comfortable in the box, um, and that, you know, speaks to his dedication and how seriously he took his craft. But like I said a few minutes ago, he, here's this, like, very layered guy, a uh, very interesting, unique person who has a dynamic personality. Even though he was taking, you know, hitting very seriously and, and, and wanting to do, you know, well for his team when he could, um, you know, he also took the time, had the frame of mind to, you know, put on a bigger batting helmet so that the batting helmet would fl- would fly off and the fans would laugh. So, you know, it, it, that says everything to about him right there, just how kind of, you know, he's a walking anomaly. I mean, you and and everything about him is uh, it comes back to that, right? Like you think about his body, and yet he shows off his athleticism that, that day down in Miami when he, when he flips the ball back behind his, uh, behind his back. Right. So you wouldn't expect that from, you know, those cat like reflexes <laughs> from a guy of his body type. Um, but that's, that's him as a whole person. He's just like this dynamic walking anomaly. I was a little surprised. And, and throughout the book, you'll ask him his favorite, you know, guy he's, Hardest to hit, favorite stadium on the road, favorite stadium, yeah. home stadium. And I was surprised at how fond he was of his Mets years. Now, they were three years. He went to the World Series, was yeah. a big part of those teams, pitched very well. Some of his seasons of the Mets, if you start looking at some advanced analytics, are right up there, better than his Cy Young season that he had with Anaheim. But he holds mm-hmm. his Mets years very fond. And again, it's more than yes. that home run. Just talk about the home run is disrespectful, in my opinion. It's a fun moment. But uh, talk about that, because I, I was a little surprised at how fond he was of his Mets years. I didn't expect that for a guy that you know, played with them at the end of his career, didn't come up with them, and was not the star of that staff by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I was a little surprised about that, too. And um, I just had one other quick thought, if you don't mind me sharing. Um, when I spoke to him about his time in Montreal, you know, for me, as a huge baseball fan, I've been a huge baseball fan my whole life. You know, I remember when he went to Montreal, I was like, man, this is like a huge deal. Like, he might literally save the franchise. And when I spoke to him about that, he he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I was in a groove, and I, and I just kind of was able to keep my groove going. I wasn't thinking about, you know, if the team could stay in the, in the city. And I was just kind of like, wow. Like, I, I just would have thought that he would have felt you know, maybe a little more pressure on him, but he didn't. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, the Mets time, and then the sort of the opposite was true with the Mets uh, in that, you know, he spent uh, three years there, but, 
you know, it seems like they were, you know, about maybe the three, you know, most favorite years of his career. It's, it, it comes off that way. He doesn't quite say it, put it that way, but um, he really enjoyed himself. And, um, <laughs> you know, I am a, I am a Mets fan and uh, I don't, I don't, but I really don't think that that is what bled into the text at all. When, it, when I put it together, um, any kind of favoritism, I think that he just, he bought a house in New Jersey um, he he still lives there part time, and as he says in the book, the Mets it really was the team that felt most like home for him, and uh, you know he stayed with them for a third year um, because and he took less money because he just felt so comfortable uh, with that franchise um, and uh, what so many great moments for him. I mean, not not just the home run, right? But he also pitched in his one World Series. Uh, with the Mets. He pitched in the All-Star game. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had the Jose Fernandez game with the Mets. Plus, like I said, the, the behind-the-back throw, which was a different game, but also in Miami. So just as it turns out, just, just a, a ton of great moments for him. And the Mets fans embraced him, I think, more so than any other fan base uh, of all the teams that he was with. One more thing I'll point out, too, is I think you know, something else that might have been a factor here is, and Omar Vizquel kind of talks about it in his excerpt, uh, about how, you know, later in his career with the Mets and, and the Rangers, and, you know, he sort of seemed to open up a little bit and enjoy himself more. When he was with Cleveland, he was so young and so shy. And I wonder if maybe just as Bartolo aged a little bit, he kind of, you know, felt a little more comfortable, felt like he could come out of his shell a little bit. So then that creates this energy where the Mets fans can embrace him and Bartolo embraces them even more. And it creates this real like cycle of positive energy, if, if that makes sense. I think people forget he was very big for them in that World Series run. He didn't start any games, but that was a thin bullpen. It was a bullpen that was very mm-hmm. dicey outside of Familia. And he was able to, when starters got kicked out of the game early, uh, fifth, sixth inning, knocked out, you know, that bridge. You know, I know John Neese was the lefty, but instead of them have to go out and get an arm, he was able to really pitch well. And uh, for the most part, uh, outside of the Chase Utley game, and we know what happened there when he came in, he almost got them out of that inning. He really didn't give up anything. And guy was starting all year, been a starter his whole career. Now you're being asked to go to the bullpen, warm up, come in, up, down, whatever. And he did it. And he did it without complaining. And that's big. And then he comes back for less money the next year. Uh, Just shows you a lot about who he was, you know, looking back with a, a unique team that was, and he was a big part of that bridge to Familia, uh, which they badly needed during that postseason. Uh, Terry Collins says in the book, uh, I got to speak to Terry Collins over the phone, and, and he contributed a story, and he says the definition of a professional, he's like Bartolo's right there, you know? Um, and, yeah, he does discuss in the book, Bartolo, that is about how uncomfortable he was coming out of the bullpen, but he knew that that was what the team needed, so he was going to do it. And, um, you know, he had a couple of tough luck performances. He gave up a few runs. But, you know, I think in the World Series, I want to say, I think he came in with runners on. I mean, this is something that this guy has just, like, literally almost never done in his entire, forget just professional career, probably in his entire, like, life. You know what I mean? <laughs> like when he was starting to pitch in the Dominican Republic at age, you know, 14. You know, I don't think that the way they organize games there, he was – you know, coming in out of a bullpen and, you know, with runners on and like an eighth inning situation or whatever it was, uh, or extra innings, I think, was what happened in the World Series. Um, and then, yeah, like you mentioned, the, the Chase Utley play. I mean, 
he should have gotten out of that inning. Um, so he had a little bit of tough luck in the in the playoffs, but overall he pitched he pitched pretty well for them and in a spot where he was not comfortable. And I think that says a lot about him as a character and as a teammate. And uh, again, I go back to you know what Terry Collins said about him. Uh, he tells that great story about one of his early starts in Anaheim where Bartolo just didn't have it and he gave up like back-to-back-to-back home runs, I think, in like the first inning. And you know what he did? He took his, he took his licks and he, he stayed in the game until the fifth inning because the bullpen was, was tired. So, you know, his ERA ballooned up to like six or something like that. But, you know, he didn't care. He, he knew it was best for the team and, and, he, and he wanted to stay in the game. He told Terry after the first inning, he goes, I'm going to get you into the seventh. And he wound up going five, but still, like, that's his, that was his attitude, and that was, you know, a real um, testament to him. And what's interesting also when you go to his Mets years is that here's a guy in the league two decades plus, and Dan Worthen is one of his favorite pitching coaches. They had a unique relationship, one that for both mm-hmm. of them I was surprised, you know, with their pregame or uh, pregame routine. Uh, that says a lot. I mean, Worthen uh, was kind of a – bit of a controversial figure you know some myself included thought he didn't do a great job with younger pitchers but certainly veterans who knew what they were doing needed someone just to kind of correct uh, he seemed to be a good guy for them and it seems like Bartolo fell into that and that's a high praise for a pitching coach for a guy like this 20 plus years in the big leagues picks him out of all the pitching coaches that you could have you know minor leagues big leagues you know winter ball whatever that's the guy he picked very interesting yeah, you know, when when I was doing those, like, so what I did was that all those asides was actually, if I may take credit, they, they were my idea to just kind of ask him, like, hey, what's your favorite uniform? What's your favorite stadium? Uh, you know, I just kind of did this, like, you know, uh, you know, sort of like quick, uh, you know, almost like word association type thing. And when I asked him who's his favorite manager and when I asked him who his favorite pitching coaches uh he was a little uncomfortable giving the answers that he gave he said bob garen for his uh for manager and he said dan warthen for pitching coach and he and again his sensitivity here's his sensitivity on display he said you know listen all my managers were different they all taught me something something unique and he basically said the same thing for um for the pitching coach but but I, I put him on the spot. <laughs> I forced him to give uh, single answers, and, and for pitching coach, he said Dan Worthen. Um, but I think I wonder if with Dan Worthen it had as much to do just with their personalities meshing than anything else, you know. Um, uh, you know, so the routine that you hinted at was before every start uh, when he was with the Mets, he would play hide and go seek with Dan Worthen, um, and that became you know, part of his routine. Uh, and he would come out of the uh, locker room. And I guess just, you know, you do this thing 162 times a year, right? There's a rhythm to it, you know, when you get to the stadium, when you put your, you know, jersey on, whatever. So I guess Warden must have just sort of known about when Bartolo would be ready for him and, and he would just go hide. And Bartolo just kind of sort of knew intuitively, like when to go look for him. Um, and, you know, Warden tells stories about, you know, jumping out of a closet to scare him and, like, making him laugh and all this kind of stuff. And they did that so many times. And then when Dan Warden was his pitching coach in Texas, they started doing it again in Texas. But it was just such a great, uh, such a great story. 
And by the way, yeah, Warthen, uh, when I spoke to him, when I spoke to Warthen a couple times on the phones, really, really nice guy. By the way, just just wanted to make sure I said that. Yeah, I've met Dan Warthen spring training. Definitely nice guy. Michael Stahl at Michael R Stahl on Twitter. MichaelStahlWrites dot com uh, is the website. Big sexy Bartolo Colon in his own words. And look, Mets fan, City Field is his favorite field. I don't know if did you have to put him on the spot with that one, or he was comfortable saying that you can't offend a stadium at this point, right? You know. Was he able to comfortably say he likes the field? Yeah, that one he was. He he kind he said pretty much uh, with, without like uh, without a doubt. He said it directly. Uh, when I look at Cologne's career, I see two mm-hmm. careers, and then I see the, the the beginning, the end, the middle, where there's a lot of uh, adversity health health wise in the yeah. middle. Uh, hard thrower, maybe lacked the command and control at the beginning of his career, but a real stud. Uh, definitely a Hall of Fame track. Back end of his career, I think you you mentioned the Terry Collins story, real professional, not bad numbers, definitely could pitch in a big game and keep you in the game and maybe even dominate, but because he's going to have one stinker out of every five, his numbers are not going to look all that great. For every one of those uh, dominant performances, there'll be maybe, or two dominant performances, he goes out to Anaheim and he gives up a ton of runs and the numbers get skewed. So I look at it at two different careers, and I don't know if you took that away. You know, you have the dominant or the young Bartolo Colon, but he knew how to pitch better late in his career. And I think the bridge yep. is those three or four or five years when he was having the shoulder trouble, the elbow trouble, very serious trouble with his shoulder, has this cell therapy, which was controversial more so then, and I think kind of went away from what it sounds like in the, in the book. But two different pitchers. And I don't know if you took that away. Way different pitchers in a lot of senses. Uh, almost two different careers. Yeah, and by the way, too, you know, at that whole time when his elbow and shoulder uh, was giving him trouble, he also went through an incredible personal tragedy, uh, which, you know, I'm not going to get get into um, just because I kind of want to, you know, you know, get people to, to read the book, you know, but, um, but uh, that is something, that period in his life just before he goes to the Yankees, when he's out of baseball, uh, yeah, it was not only because of physical issues. He was going through some big family turmoil, uh, big family tragedy occurred. And um, that was also a big reason why he was out of baseball for for a year. And people, I don't think, know that. Um, and I've seen some some articles online where they kind of discuss, you know, that, that year where he was away from baseball and they're kind of like, ah, you know, he uh, he had to go and do this controversial surgery, and that that was the only reason he was able to come back. He was doing the steroids or whatever. Um, I think his personal tragedy had a much bigger impact on his decision to stay away from the game than than anything. So that's something that people were not aware of, and and they'll learn about. But um, his career is an incredible one. I mean, uh, is there anyone else? you know, that's ever been like that. Um, maybe a small handful. Um, but, uh, it, it was interesting. I mean, I guess that's just not how we, how we evolve, right. As we age, you know, if only he had the sort of intellectual tools that he did as a 40 year old, uh, you know, if he could have had those at 25, you know, who knows what he could have been. I mean, he could have been, uh, you know, he could have been Pedro maybe, I don't know. Um, but, uh, I definitely think what you just highlighted about those sort of two different careers 
is part of the reason behind um, Abrams wanting to do the book in the first place because it's just a fascinating uh, career track. And before I let you go and wrap up, uh, the Hall of Fame, he mentions that he talks a little bit about it in the book. Yeah. Uh, most wins for a Dominican pitcher if he gets a chance. Uh, and, and it sounds like, you know, COVID might put an end to it, but maybe who knows? I mean, he's in his late 40s now, you know, mid to late 40s. You know, he needs about 50 innings to get the most innings for a Dominican pitcher. His Hall of Fame case, when I first saw it brought up in the book, I'm like, nah, that's that's crazy, you know. But then I look at the comps on baseball reference, guys like Jack Morris mm -hmm. and Jim Bunning, yeah. uh, Hall of Famers, you know, CeCe Sabathia, who should be a Hall of Famer. And I look at the wins, 247. I know people don't really look at that all that much. The peripherals aren't bad overall, but they're they're not tremendous, the, the advanced numbers. It's a shame he lost those three or four years because I think the case would be much different if he has, uh, you know, averages maybe oh, you know, sure. 12 wins. I think we're having a much different conversation. With that said, it's not a terrible, terrible case. I think it's a veterans committee case down the line, but it's not mm -hmm. a terrible case. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts. I mean, you know, you're kind of my generation, and, and I'm not a total, you know, advanced guy, but I take a lot of this now, as we've learned over the last decade plus, into account. You know, you can make an argument. Guys like Jim Bunning don't belong in the Hall of Fame when you look back at how, you know, they voted then and what we look at now. But you have precedent for guys similar to Cologne, similar careers, similar numbers in the Hall of Fame. So it's not all that crazy, Bartolo Cologne, a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think his his Hall of Fame resume is an interesting one. I don't think he quite measures up like you mentioned Jack Morris, but you know, if you had the um if you had that extra year at least, um or or, or two or three really, um, I think you're looking at him more like a Mike Messina, right? In terms of the number of wins uh and things like that. And maybe even better than Mike Messina because Messina uh, never won the Cy Young uh and Cologne did. So I think that he's close. Uh, I think that, you know, the way he the way he talks about the numbers and the fact that the numbers don't tell the whole story is is interesting. So, for example, his first year in Anaheim, his ERA, if I recall correctly, was five point oh one, right? But he won eighteen games. And I think you would heard some of this with Jack Morris as well, that Morris's ERA is what, like 3.87, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, um, about league average. And, right. And, you know, I think Morris said the same thing, and Bartolo will, I think, say something similar, is that, you know, when he was on Anaheim, Bartolo, that is, you know, he had a pretty good offensive team. So if he's, you know, by the second or third inning, if he's staked to a 5 nothing lead, He's just, you know, he's just launching balls right into the strike zone. He's not going to walk anybody, right? So maybe he finishes the game, he goes, you know, six innings, and he gives up three runs, you know, but he gets the win. His team wins, say, 6-3, right, 7-3. Um, but, you know, if it was a one nothing game, maybe he would have, you know, maybe sacrificed a couple walks, struck some guys out. He was pitching to contact, and when he pitched to contact, there's a risk that, you know, guys are going to, you know, launch it out of the park. And that's what happened that one year. He gave up the most home runs of his career, and it was right after he had signed that contract, and people were saying, like, oh, the pressure's getting to him and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, he won. 
he did what he took to take to help his team win, and he and he did win. He won 18 games that year. So even though his ERA was over five, he didn't view that as like a bad year, you know. Um, so his ERA, his career ERA, or ERA is something like 4.06 or 4.08, something like that. So you know that's a little high, and he he says in the book he knows that his steroid suspension hurts him as well. Um, but it's it is interesting when you think of a guy like him, how, how do you define a Hall of Famer, right? Do you define it by dominance? Do you define it by longevity? Uh, perhaps, you know, for him to even just have been in the major leagues as long as he was is a testament to that. And you could argue that that makes him a Hall of Famer in, in that way. But also, what did the guy do to get his team to win to get his team into the playoffs and within the Mets case, you know, to the world series, he did a lot. He did a lot. And then, and that speaks to none none of the intangible things in terms of, you know, sort of being a mentor to young Hispanic players, uh, particularly Hispanic players. Like when he was with the Mets, uh, Terry Collins talks a lot about that and and Dan Worthen as well. So um, it, it just depends on what side of the fence, you know, you fall on in terms of how you view a hall of famer. But I definitely think he has, at, at worst, an interesting case. And I agree with what you said. I think a Veterans Committee um, debate uh, is, is probably in the cards for him at, at the very least. If you had, I know it's just a guess. Uh, he'd yeah. be 48 years old. If, let's say, baseball doesn't come back this year, comes back normal-ish, you know, normal season next year. You know a little bit about him now. Would you put it past him, giving it a shot, coming into camp as a non-roster invitee? If he could get that kind of job, it's going to get very difficult at his age with the way the game is going. Would you put it past him, getting those 50 innings, getting a chance, even if it was a bad team, knowing what you know, giving this a shot at 48 years old? Think about that, 48 years old. So what is, we'll leave on that. Yeah, I mean, he says in the book, here was another interesting remark, you know, he, that he said that, that stood out to me. Um, he said, you know, it makes sense that the younger prospects would get the chance first, right? You know, give them the chance, you know, from a team franchise perspective, give them the chance to see what they got um, before he would get an opportunity. Do I put it past them? Absolutely not. Um, that would not surprise me uh, at all. Uh, in terms of uh, his work ethic, his dedication, um, his love for the game, it wouldn't surprise me at all. It might surprise me from like sort of a franchise perspective, um, you know, for them to want to give him the opportunity over some, you know, kid out of college or, or, or something like that. But, um, but I know if, if that's what he wants to do, uh, he will do whatever it takes, uh, you know, to at least give himself a shot. So, if he ends up as a non-roster invite or something like that, yeah, that would not surprise me at all. The book is Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words, Michael Stahl. You can check out Michael michaelstahlwrites.com, at Michael R. Stahl on Twitter. Michael, appreciate the time on this Sunday. Have a great uh, you know, holiday weekend coming up. I, I hope you and I could be talking baseball again this summer. And uh, good luck with the book, and let's definitely catch up again, my friend. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on, and, uh, you know, I uh, appreciate the uh, the publicity and love talking baseball, so uh, and especially talking Mets. So any anytime you'd like to have me back, uh, it, it'd be my pleasure, absolutely. Michael Stahl, interesting stuff, Bartolo Colon, just something to get us through as we wait for 
baseball, some kind of baseball for us to uh, actually talk about in 2020, very much up in the air as we talked about in the opening. So let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right. uh, Great stuff from Michael Stahl there. Really enjoyed. Nice, long conversation. And, you know, to me, the thing that I always remember about Bartolo Colon, uh, specifically with the Mets, is, you know, Terry Collins was right. I mean, I, I actually remember that Anaheim game. Bartolo's career with the Mets, at least at that point, in general, his career there was... Good game, good game, pretty good game, not so great game, real big stinker. But you'd get probably three or four out of five where he'd keep you in the ball game out of his, you know, in every five starts. But then he had that one real stinker that would jack up his his stats in a negative way, and hence why you had a league average to slightly above league average pitcher uh, with the Mets. But uh, Bartolo gave you innings when there was a situation where. You know, he didn't have it like that game in Anaheim that we mentioned earlier. Uh, he would he would get you through to try to save you the bullpen. and But during that time, you had Harvey, you had Syndergaard, you had Matt, you had DeGrom. They were all coming up. And all of them have had injury issues. Everybody forgets that DeGrom had injury issues earlier in his career. Bartolo, the oldest, the one that looked the least in shape, made all his starts. And, uh, you know, won about 45 games in those three years, you know, averaging about 15 wins a year. I know wins don't matter as much, but, you know, here's a guy that wasn't going eight or nine innings. He was going six, maybe seven. So that just shows you that he kept this team in the ball game. And, uh, you know, maybe he didn't strike out a ton of players, but he would get uh, strikeouts on uh, his location. Uh, you know, it was a lot of weak contact. So even though he wasn't doing the whole swing and miss thing, because of his location, it was incredible sometimes how, how pinpoint his control was. Uh, he was a huge piece of that team. And yes, in 2015, uh, as a starter, as they were trying to figure out as Syndergaard was coming up and Mats and, and Dylan G and John Neese were not having such great years and Harvey was coming back from an injury and DeGrom was very good. But, you know, he was still very young and trying to figure it out. Cologne was that model of consistency. He was that veteran in the rotation they needed. I mean, initially when they signed him in 2014, they were trying to figure out who was going to take Harvey's innings when he was going to be down with his uh, year off for Tommy John surgery. And then he, in tw- in the, at the end of the year, when it appeared they weren't going to need him as a starter in the playoffs, he goes out there and he uh, provides a very valuable bridge. Remember, that team... They had Tyler Clippard, who was injured and getting really knocked, uh, you know, beat down with a bad back later that year. It was not the pitcher they thought they could get. They had Addison Reed, but I don't think they knew what they had. So as you got into the sixth, seventh, eighth inning before Familia, unless you wanted Familia to go six outs every game, you needed to bridge about three to four, maybe five outs. Especially in the games where you had like maybe Mats going only five. I remember that game. Uh, what was it in Chicago? Uh, you had a game against the Dodgers where Harvey did not have his best stuff in Game 3, and they had to bring Cologne in a little earlier than maybe they wanted to uh, go to the, the bullpen. And he provided big outs. 
He had a really good postseason, and he was valuable, and he did it as a veteran that hadn't done it in a long time, probably wasn't comfortable with it, but he figured it out, and that's what I remember about Bartolo Colon, how big he was, especially because that team was very short in the bullpen, and he provided, as well as John Neese against lefties to a lesser degree, but John Neese was pretty pretty valuable as well, uh, coming out of the rotation late that year and and giving them some very important bullpen. So is he all a famer? No, but I think the debate is a lot more serious than we think. And with those 247 wins, and assuming that his career is over and that's it, you won't get it more innings, more wins, most wins by a Dominican pitcher, more than Juan Marichal, a Hall of Famer. If he didn't have that three- or four-year period where they, he was injured, a very serious injury with shoulder and elbow and all the things that come with that, uh, you average another, you know, let's say, I think he only won uh, you know, 10 to 15 games during that year. Let's say he gets another 30, 40 victories. Now you're up to 275. And let's assume, you know, not from a peripheral uh, numbers standpoint, the secondary numbers, let's say they're not any real different than he was not at the the peak earlier in his career where he certainly was on a Hall of Fame trajectory, but not as as bad as maybe he was those years, but somewhere in between the end and the beginning of his career, the end where he's more league average, the beginning where he's certainly elite. Uh, I think you have a much tougher decision. I mean, if you at that point you have maybe an Andy Pettit type situation where you probably still, or as Michael said, a, a Mike Mussina, where you probably still feel. Uh, but you know, these are guys that uh, you know now with the way things are. You know, the way that we look at at players. Uh, Mike Messina's in the Hall of Fame. Mike Messina's a guy that won 270 ball games, and, you know, he de- definitely had much better secondary numbers than Cologne. But with those extra four years, would it be possible for Cologne to rack up enough numbers that where the, the committee or even the Veterans Committee, not just the, the Baseball Writers Association of America, would say, yeah, a little bit higher ERA, but the one thing that bothers me a lot of times when it comes to whether it be the Baseball Writers Association of America or the Veterans Committee, who's going to be less prone to doing that, is precedent. Once you let a Jim Bunning in, once you let a Bill Mazeroski in, that you now you've lowered the bar to similar type players. And I know that's a simple way of looking at it, but you have. And I always look at precedent. When this player is elected, what's the precedent you're setting from a body of work? Understanding that when you started voting, people voted for Jim Bunning, and the Baseball Writers Association of America prior to probably 2010 looked at things completely different than they look at now. I mean, way different. So maybe that's not fair to look at precedent. But it's there, and it's something I take into consideration, and I hope that those who have a vote would take it into consideration when it's all said and done. So Michael Stahl, at Michael R. Stahl, big sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. Check it out. Enjoy some really quick, fun, informative reading as we head towards the unofficial start of summer, Memorial Day weekend, in, uh, in just another week. So anyway, we're out of time. Hope everybody enjoyed uh, this edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Of course, you could check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media on Twitter and also at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet, of course. You can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another edition of the podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.